someone announced a contest where they invited artists all over the world, actually, to paint what they would understand as a picture of peace. So even right now, just get in your mind for a second. What would you paint, or if you don't paint, what picture pops into your mind that reflects most what peace is? The challenge, obviously, stirred the imagination of artists everywhere. Paintings arrived far and wide, and finally the day of revealing came, and the judges were sitting there, and they were looking at each one of the paintings as they were unveiled, and one peaceful scene after another, the viewers clapped, they cheered, they oohed, and they awed, and the tension grew because they finally got down to the, the last two paintings. They're covered, they're veiled. A judge pulls the cover from one of them and a hush fell over the crowd. This really happened. And it was, this painting was a mere smooth lake reflecting just lazy green birches under the soft blush of the evening sky. And along that grassy shore in this painting were, was a flock of, of sheep uh, just grazing undisturbed. And surely the crowd had to be thinking this was the winner. This is what peace looks like. This is what peace is. An unruffled life, glassy, smooth, free from trouble. Well, it was to that painter. Life without problems and a landscape of serenity. So the question really is, well, actually a couple questions, is that really what peace is? And if it's not, then what is peace? I mean, I'm sure you want to know this. I wanted to know this. I hunger to know really what peace is, but actually even more than what peace is. I mean, I love the definitions of words. I'm a wordsmith, but come on, just tell me how to get it. How can I get more peace in my life? Well, we're in a series called Root to Fruit, and we're looking closely at the work of God through His Spirit deep down in our hearts, and He's producing the character of Christ in His children. Now, what we talked about two weeks ago, I need to bring it back into this message because you're going to hear this all the way through this series. You've got nine descriptions of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22, nine of them. There were 15 examples of the works of the flesh. You've got nine here, and there are more, by the way, but there are nine here, fruit of the Spirit, descriptions. And all nine of them, now here's so, this is so critically important. Actually, I'm going to give you like an uncommon permission here. All you really need to do is listen to about three things I'm going to tell you. And if I remember, I'll cue you the rest of the time, just... I don't care. Look on ESPN, see how the Eagles are going to lose. Whatever you want to do. But here's, let me tell you. Here's the first. Wouldn't that be awesome if you woke up tomorrow and miraculously it was the Cowboys versus the Patriots? I mean, that would be... All right, back to the sermon. Here's the first one. You ready? Here it is. This is so big. This truly is so big. The nine virtues of the fruit of the Spirit. Listen, here it is. This is massive. This is why I'm building this up so much. You've got to get this. It is a description of the character of Jesus Christ. 
It is a description of what the Spirit of God is doing in every believer's life, making you and making me more like Jesus. And this is what it looks like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all the rest of them. And as they grow in measure, then you grow in similarity to the heart of Christ. They are all together the life of Jesus And they are being produced in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he does that. Listen here, this is not the second one, but this is still a continuation of the first major point. The Spirit of God does this. He weaves these virtues, this character in us. He makes us more like Christ, listen, as we walk with him. Surrendered. I just gave you a major, major way that we walk with with the Spirit. We surrender to Him. We trust Him. We obey Him. I mean, come on. You're really not going to become more like Christ if you don't obey Him, if you don't surrender to Him, if you don't trust Him. And the fountainhead of all of these nine virtues, well, it's the first one. It's love. Now, this just makes sense. And by the way, here's what I'm going to do. I'll put it in a fishing metaphor in this message because I really like to fish. But I like, to, I like to fish with top floater lures. And if you know what I'm talking about, it's Rapala makes them really good. They're a lightweight lure, but they've got a little plastic uh, bill underneath the chin of the fish, two treble hooks usually on it. And as you reel it in, that provides interference with the water and makes it dive down. That's kind of what this sermon's like. We're going to be on the surface, but every once in a while I'm going to start reeling and we're going to go deeper. We're not deep water fishing. We're not deep sea fishing. We're going to get just below the surface a little bit because, listen, it's peace. How can you exhaust what the Bible says about peace in one sermon? You cannot do it. But what we're going to learn is this, that none of these function without love. None of them can function without agape love. And what's agape love? It's a love that turns away from yourself toward others. It's a love not that you feel. It's a love that you choose. That's agape love. The world cannot experience it. The non-believer cannot live that love. It's the love of God poured into the hearts of his children by the Spirit of God so that it overflows to other people. It's a selfless love. It's a love focused on God, focused on others. And, that's, and what's powerfully clear is this. Selfish people aren't very joyful, are, are they? I mean, come on. You know selfish people. And I will promise you, you will never find a selfish person that's joyful. And neither are they patient, kind, gentle, or faithful. Their lives are oriented toward themselves, and it depends, their happiness depends on how others treat them, on how well they can manage and control and manipulate. See, love, agape love, decisively turns us outward and freely displays itself whether or not it's deserved but what does this piece look like when our master artist the spirit of god paints it on the canvas of our lives well i just gave you introductions so i'm going to give you a few points and i'm going to start reeling it in we're going to go a little bit deeper not too much this one much more a little bit more in the second much more in the third here we go this piece number one has only one source. Now, this is basic, but hugely, critically important. Let's recall again, look at your verse, Galatians 5.22. If I were you, I would underline one word and draw a line to your margin and write this down. This is the the fruit of, I would underline of. That's the source. 
So this peace has one source. There's one producer of peace, and that producer is God. You cannot get this anywhere other than God. So whatever it is we're about to see with peace, only someone who possesses the Spirit of God can have this kind of peace. Now, there are other kinds of pieces, or pieces, <laughs> I'm thinking Reese's Pieces perhaps, I don't know. There's other kinds of peace that you can have, right? I mean, the world says peace, peace, but there's not peace, peace, the Bible says. But there's, there's other kinds of peace, but really you can only get it when you're walking with the Spirit in a relationship to God. Now, in case that's not utterly clear, the Old Testament says this, Hosea 14, verse 8, from me, God says, comes your fruit. So fruit, all nine virtues of it, can only come from one source. It comes from God. Now, let me just give you a naturalistic explanation for a second, just Imagine going to an orchard, and in an orchard, there are lots of different kinds of species of trees, and there's some really young ones, and you might ask somebody, I wonder what kind of fruit tree that little sapling tree is. Well, it's going to take probably more than a couple of years, but you're probably eventually going to see the fruit that it bears, and that will give its identity. So if you want to know what kind of a tree that orchard Bear, or that fruit tree is in the orchard, you got to wait till the fruit comes to really know. Now, I want you to, to maybe give you a little bit of a more of a family explanation of this. There's times where my kids usually, or my people in the church will say to me, you know, um, your child, that youngest one, or that oldest one, or your daughter, that's definitely an Ackley. Now, that's usually not meant nicely, <laughs> which I pray for God's forgiveness when they do this, but what they're really saying is this, is that that child of mine took on either Denise's or my characteristics, either my physical characteristics or the, my personality, something that I've said. They bear a resemblance to me. In the same way, it works with the Spirit. As we walk with the Spirit, what's he doing? He's transforming us to look like Jesus, to increasingly display his virtues, all nine of those, plus others in the Scriptures, to display them to the world. So listen, if the Spirit of God is in you, there will be inevitably the production of this fruit. And I'm going to say that again because this needs to produce confidence in you. If the Spirit of God is in you, there will inevitably be the production of this fruit. And the Bible talks about fruit quite a bunch. 70 times in the New Testament, 106 times in the Old Testament. See, God has a lot to say about fruit in the lives of his children. Why? Well, here it is. It's an indicator that a person is saved and walking with God. I mean, look, listen to what Jesus said to his disciples. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. You got to put that little word much right smack in the middle of that sentence. He doesn't just want a little bit of fruit. He wants you and he wants, uh, he wants me. He wants us to bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So listen, if, if you're not bearing fruit... It's telling you one of two things. Either you're not a disciple of Jesus or something's blocking that. You're not walking with him. 
Let me reel it in a little bit more. Let's let that fish dive under the water a little bit deeper. Point number two, this piece has an incredible meaning. Now, I just told you that this can only come from the Spirit of God. It's only for the people of God. But it has an incredible meaning. It's a big deal in scriptures, by the way. It's found in every New Testament book except 1 John. That tells you something. In the Old Testament, the favorite word for peace was shalom. I'm sure you've heard of that. Shalom was the Jewish greeting. It was also the Jewish way of saying goodbye. You say hello, goodbye, good morning, good evening. But listen, it was much more than just a simple greeting. It was, more than, it was even more than just hoping that your day goes well and that you have no trouble. It was a hope that you have a complete, whole, and blessed life. That's what shalom is. It's the hope to someone else that they have a complete, whole, and blessed life. This is what peace is. Now we're diving a little bit deeper. I'm getting you into the, to the ingredients, what it really looks like when you unmask it. It's been said that the Jewish people coveted nothing more than peace. Yet it was very elusive to them. It's elusive to many Christians, but we can feel the same. Don't you want peace? Now be careful, I haven't defined it yet. So as you turn to the New Testament, shalom's the Old Testament. That's the Hebrew word for peace. Let's get you to the New Testament. The Greek word is arene. If you know anybody by the name of Irene, that's what their name means. It's from the Greek word erine. It means to join, or as I'm going to show you, it's the state of untroubled, undisturbed tranquility, despite the circumstances you find yourself in. It's an internal tranquility, even if there's external trouble. It's a verb, or in its verb form, here's what it means. It means to bind together. It means to weave together. Let's put it in a common vernacular. It's when you're in a trial and you hold it all together. You keep it all together. You don't fall apart. Peace is the power to keep it together even when everything in your life seems to be falling apart. This is what we're getting. Now we're getting at it. We're getting deeper. We're going to go a little deeper, but we're getting at what peace is. Now listen, let's just think for a moment. Think of the last deep struggle that you've been in. You might be in it now. I'm often saying that uh, trials are part of life, right? You're either coming out of a trial or you're in a trial or you're soon to be heading into one. I mean, we're just, this life is full of trouble. This life is full of trials and difficulties. So if you go a little bit deeper, let me give a little tug on that reel. You go a little bit deeper, get that fish down there. What you're going to find at its absolute depth, that peace is the tranquility of mind. Listen, this is so important. The tranquility of mind that comes when you're reconciled to God and you're trusting that God is sovereignly caring for you. It's only when you believe that God is sovereign and it's twin corollary that God is good that you can have this deep down fundamental peace. I mean, think about it. It's not really that comforting to know that God is all powerful if he wasn't all good, right? You're ducking every time you sin. You're waiting for him to hit the cosmic smite button on your life and bring some kind of calamity. 
And it's really not that comforting to know that God is super good, but he's really not that powerful. You've got to bring both of them together. And the Bible does it over and over. And together they manufacture peace. God is sovereign. God is good. They marry and produce the offspring of peace. And it settles deep down into a Christian's heart. See, the effect of peace with God where there's no conflict between me and God and you and God, and we're made whole with him, we're woven together with him, the effect is peace. See, peace comes then from being reconciled to God. You live out peace when you know you've got a relationship with him and he is sovereign and he is good. Now, what I'm about to tell you is hugely practical and it's really super clear. To the world, peace comes when they are free from trouble. So listen, to a non-believer, what they've got to do then is get the chaotic waters of their life to settle down into calm waters. They've got to get out of the trouble. Now listen, for the Christian, the peace of God in our hearts can exist right in the midst of trouble. Right on the surface of the stormy waters. See, Bible peace, Adrian Rogers once said, is not the subtraction of problems from life. It's the addition of power to meet these problems. You don't keep this peace. This peace keeps you. It's peace that passes understanding. You get it from God, which Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. See, this peace that I'm defining, point number two, is not freedom from trouble. It's the calmness that comes from having a relationship with a powerful, good God. It's that inner quietness of your, your soul when you're trusting in God's goodness and sovereignty. Now, can I take you all the way back to the beginning for a second? Remember I told you that they were down to two paintings in that contest, and uh, that one painting that they just unveiled to the gasps of the audience was a really serene, beautiful, idyllic landscape. And then all of a sudden, the one who created the contest comes up, And he takes that canvas off that final, the cover off the final canvas of painting. And here's what that painting was. It was a tumultuous waterfall cascading down a rocky cliff. So detailed that you can almost feel its cold, penetrating spray. Stormy uh, gray clouds up in the sky threatening to explode with lightning, wind, and rain. And in the midst of that thundering cacophony, a spindly tree clung to the rocks at the edge of the falls. And one of its branches, it reached out in front of the torrential waters as if foolishly asking to experience its full power. And at the end of that branch, a little bird had built a nest in the elbow of that branch. Content, undisturbed, in the stormy surroundings, she rested right on top of her eggs. That's peace that only a believer can have. You see, peace with God brings the peace of God. Did you get the preposition change? 
Let me say it again. Peace with God. You're reconciled. You're saved. You have a relationship with him. He has joined you together with him. Listen, it brings you peace of God. His peace down in your heart. The peace that Jesus had when all the disciples were crying out, we're going to drown in the midst of that storm on that lake. And Jesus speaks to that stormy water and says, peace, be still. See, peace with God brings the peace of God. It's an inner calmness no matter what is happening in our external lives. But listen, I'm going to reel it in now. We're going to get deep. This was all the easy part. It's a fun part. But point number three is the final point. This peace has life-changing power. Now, I told you where the peace comes from. It only comes from God. It's only for the believer. And I told you what peace is. It is an internal reconciliation with God that brings about a calm trust in his sovereign power and goodness. And it produces a tranquility of your soul. But now I want to look and finally want to look at this peace which has life-changing power. Now listen, a while ago, back in October, I was flying over the Congo. A lot of you knew I went to Dungu and Democratic Republic of the Congo to to participate in our dedication service and um, at Restoring Hope Ministry. It's amazing. If you don't know what I'm talking about, get online at our website. This is the biggest thing I think our church has ever done. But when I was flying back, I flew from Dungu, little town, well, 370,000 people, but little tiny airstrip, to Bunya, and then from Bunya to Uganda. So when I'm flying from Dungu to Bunya, we didn't really get that high. And so I was low enough to be able to see the topography of the land. And this was amazing. I had never seen anything like this before. There were entire areas where the land was barren. Except for these snaking little green vegetative lush ribbons that just went throughout the land. I asked somebody what that was, what created that, and those were the underground rivers that in the rainy season would actually fill up and then in dry season go back out. But wherever that water went, on the banks on both sides grew incredible amounts of vegetation. They're just snaking right through the land. It was amazing, beautiful. And it reminded me of what the Spirit of God does. Wherever the Spirit of God is, there is life. He brings life. And no matter the twists and the turns that we experience, if we're led by the Spirit, there's going to be fruit that grows in our life. doesn't matter the conditions in life. It doesn't matter if you're in good times or if you're bad times. Ironically, tends to grow a little bit more in the bad times and the struggles. This fruit grows in abundance. It grows on the banks of the spirit-led Christian. And the ones to enjoy it, listen, are the people around us. You know, Romans 8 has an amazing verse. You're very familiar, I'm sure, with the first one. Maybe not so much with the second. There is therefore, Romans 8, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, here's where that goes. For, that means Paul's continuing his thought. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, I really want to explain this. Now, Christian, this is the second super, super important thing I'm going to tell you. In fact, this is the most important thing so far that I'm going to tell you. 
And if you're not a Christian, if you're here just kind of checking things out, you're kind of seeking, Lord, who is this, who is this Lord, who is this Jesus? Well, let me, let me try to explain what Jesus has done for us. I'm going to put it in a financial metaphor. I think it'll hopefully make sense. Let's say that your life circumstances, your poor choices, yeah, life change, circumstances, you're, you lost your retirement, the stocks fell, your house burned up. Life circumstances plus poor choices, it lands you millions of dollars in debt. Millions. It's an amount that you have no ability to repay. You have no hope to come out from under those millions of dollars, that weight of the tonnage of debt on you, it is inescapable. You have no way to get out. Someone comes to you with concern, and, and you share how bleak your situation is. And when he counsels you, you angrily rebuff his counsel, his kindness. You angrily rebuff him or her. But unknowing to you, that person that has come to counsel you is extremely wealthy. And that person writes a check not only to forgive and wipe out all of your debt. In fact, the word forgiveness is a financial term. So that person wipes out all of your debt, forgives all of your debt, and then adds into your bank account more money than you could ever spend in a hundred lifetimes. Not only did he wipe out your debts, he absolutely filled your account. You have an inexhaustible supply of money. All you got to do is take the check that he wrote, you take it to the bank, believing that he is good for the money. He can stand behind the check. So you deposit it, and your debt is immediately gone. But listen, those old chains of misery, those old chains of feeling choked by debt, those old chains of helplessness, sometimes they're really slow to go away. Not only that, but you have no idea how to manage this incalculable wealth that you've suddenly been given. And so that same benefactor that wiped out all of your debts and gave you all this money that you couldn't spend in a thousand years, all of that, that same benefactor, he sends somebody else to you. And that, that person begins to teach you how to truly secure your freedom from debt, how to see money and life differently than you ever did before, how to use your wealth generously for others. And this new person decides it's going to be best if he just lives with you so that you can have him constantly there for help and always have his counsel so that you can learn a new way to live now as a wealthy man or a wealthy woman to encourage you because you know why i mean listen it's tempting when you've got a lot of money right I mean, you're going to be tempted constantly to spend it on the wrong things so that person's there to help you spend it not on your own desires but on good desires and on those who live all around you now i don't know if you're getting this but that's really the scenario that happened with Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. 
You see, it was Jesus Christ who earned for you, earned for me, God's forgiveness. It was on the cross that he cried out, it is finished, something that bankers would stamp on the bottom of a mortgage when you made the final payment. And you now owned it, free and clear. It was Jesus that that canceled your debt. It was Jesus that made the final payment for your sins. It was Jesus that wiped out your loan to God. You're free. You're not in debt any longer at all. It is completely wiped out. Now listen, former slaves to sin make terribly free people or make terrible free people. Do you know the, the rate of moral recidivism is 100%? Recidivism means re-criming. I mean, it is epidemic in our prison system. It's 100% for the Christian. You're going to get your debt wiped out. I got my debt wiped out. He forgave me. He will forgive you if he hasn't yet. He has already forgiven you if you put your faith in him. But you sinned since. I sinned since. Moral recidivism is 100% for every Christian. So God sent his spirit, and his spirit gives us new desires. His spirit enables us to live the life of Christ. His spirit doesn't just walk along your day with you. Your spirit is in you. You are the body that now becomes the temple of the spirit. So listen, this really incredibly, in my view, ludicrous debate on Facebook that a woman can do whatever she wants with a baby. It's her body, total reproductive rights. It's not her body. This is not my body. You're not even living in your body. It belongs to God. It's his body. This is what Corinthians 6 says. It's the temple of God. He lives in my body, and he helps me use my body for his glory. And he helps us live free. Listen, we've got an inheritance from God through Jesus. Did you know that you don't cash in on that inheritance the moment you die? You're already drawing from it. That inheritance is already streaming to you. You already have incalculable riches in Christ. You already have a 100% yes from Jesus. All the promises of God find their amen in Jesus. You are inheritedly wealthy. You've been set free by Christ from the power and the penalty of sin. And now you're empowered to live free by the Spirit in order to love. See, that's the freedom that the Spirit gives us. He set us free through Jesus, and now he helps us live out that freedom. And that freedom is to love. Now to go back, you're probably wondering, is he even in Galatians anymore? Go back to the, uh, the passage, if you would. Notice the word is. The fruit of the Spirit is. That's a tense. Greek grammar tense that means continuous and ongoing. For example, our well is producing good, clean water. It's not a one-time event. This is an ongoing. The tense is continuous. So the fruit of the Spirit continually is love, joy, peace. Friends, the Bible is not mysterious with the answer to how to live a life of peace. This really is not shrouded in mystery. Isaiah 26, 3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Why? How? Because he trusts in you. Let me say it again. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You see, if you want peace as a Christian... You've got to trust. 
And if you don't have peace, I'm going to tell you there's something blocking it. It's either sin or a, a lack of trusting. And it could be both. I'll never forget that time years ago. We took a beach retreat down to the ocean, and the gentleman hosting us had a 26-foot crown liner speedboat, and a bunch of us climbed in. He went up to Barnegat Bay where the lighthouse is. He crossed there into the ocean, and we were down in these troughs where the ocean was above us, and then we're coming up on these swells so high that you could barely see the water around you. Up and down, up and down. And I took my oldest, who was leading worship, and he was, I think, four or five at the time. And he was rightfully scared. I was scared. If he was a little bigger, I would have climbed on his lap. He climbed on my lap, and he just hugged me. And in about five minutes, completely fell asleep for 45 minutes until we made it back in the bay. Well, that's trust. That's you know who your father is. You know when you're scared, you go to your father. You put your mind on him. You trust in him. He brings perfect peace down in your heart. And all of a sudden, like that painting, you can have swells and troughs all around you. You can have cascading waterfalls, thundering and lightning, ready to break from the sky. It doesn't matter. You're on the nest. You're resting. You're peaceful. You've got an inner tranquility. Why? Because you're trusting in your father. That's peace. Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. See, don't forget those two words, in believing, preposition in. It's inside faith that you will be filled with hope and joy and peace so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. How does that work? The Spirit of God produces it in us when we are believing, when we are trusting, when we're putting our faith in our Father who is sovereign and who is good. All of a sudden it is mass-produced by the Spirit right down in our hearts. And all those riches that Jesus got for us from the cross, they begin to be applied to us through the Spirit of God. I mean, what did you think those riches were? Money? Lottery tickets? No. It's what the world covets. It's hope, joy, love, peace, patience, kindness. They are poured into your heart, produced by the Spirit when you are in faith and belief and trust. See, the key to the Christian being filled with peace is trusting and believing God. This is, by God's grace, one of the greatest areas he's strengthened my life. I mean, this is amazing. It was strengthened so much when I read about George Mueller and Hudson Taylor. Listen, if you don't read biographies of Christian men and women, then you're, you're forfeiting one of the main ways that your faith grows. When you truly believe that not one thing, I mean, listen, are you with me on this? When you really, truly believe that not one thing in life is outside of God's control, you will have an unshakable joy in any circumstance. And when you truly believe that God is always, at every single moment, perfectly good towards you, you will have undimished confidence in your loving God. And when you truly trust that nothing can touch you unless it goes first through the hand of God, you will have steadfast endurance no matter your trial. When you truly trust that if you needed something for life and joy, God would give it to you then you're going to have an inner contentment. You're going to have a quietness that will endure no matter what. So listen, are you going through a hard time right now? 
Maybe it's health. We have a person, a very good friend of mine in our church, that's lost his dad yesterday. We have people in our church and here tonight who are about to lose their father and husband. We got people who have loved ones, siblings, have brain tumors and about to get surgery. We've got everything. People have lost their jobs. Listen, no matter what your circumstance, no matter how difficult it is, you can have peace in the midst of that storm. The Spirit of God will produce it as you trust in Him and walk with Him. I love what Psalm 119 says. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Did you get really the clue here? How you get this peace? It's the word of God. Do you know what happens when you read the word of God? When you read the word of God to know your God... This is living and active. These are not static words. And they go down into your heart. They begin to fix what's wrong in your mind because you're probably believing lies somewhere in your life. And it begins to correct and straighten it out, Ecclesiastes says. And all of a sudden, these words go down like medicine and it begins to disintegrate all through your soul. Almost faster than neurotransmission gets to your brain. And all of a sudden, your soul begins producing faith. And your mind begins believing promises. And your life begins experiencing peace. But all of a sudden, the devil comes and he snaps your eyes over to the trial and the wave that's about to hit you. And all of a sudden, you begin doubting a little bit. You're walking with God. The Spirit of God says, no, verse 16, I'm going to interrupt the desires of your flesh that want to control your own life. I'm going to say no to that. I'm going to teach you how not to gratify that. I'm going to give you the fruit of the Spirit. My fruit all begins with love, and it produces joy, and it produces peace. That's the upward ones, and then it begins to extend horizontally, gentleness and kindness. People get to enjoy the fruit, all because he's putting peace in your heart rather than anxiety. That's peace. Well, it comes from one source. God can't get it anywhere else. Only the Christian can have it. And not only does it come from one source, it has an incredible meaning. Far, far better, deeper, wider than anything the world can define it. It is inner tranquility, inner calmness, despite outer circumstances that produces faith. Why? Because you know your God is sovereign and you know he is good. And all of a sudden, the implications of that peace... You take all of those riches that Christ accomplished for you, Christ gained for you on the cross and in the resurrection as he snapped you free from the power of sin. And all of a sudden, the onboard God, spirit of God, begins to teach you, listen, you're in the trough and you're in the swell, but you're on my lap and I've got you. You have nothing to fear. Let's move together. That's peace. Amen. We're going to pray in a moment, but before we do, and as a worship team, actually, as Matthew, Pastor Matthew comes up, he's going to do uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, let, me, let me close this with the same benediction that Matthew did with the children. And I'm going to have you stand. You're probably just going to sit right back down anyways, but stand if you would, and I'm going to teach you something. If you're a Star Trek fan like I am, you've seen Spock do this, right? That's the Vulcan greeting. 
You know how he learned that? He opened his eyes when a rabbi priest was doing a blessing. He was Jewish. You're not supposed to open your eyes because what the belief was is that the Shekinah, the presence of God, peeks through the V upon you. You're supposed to have your eyes closed. He peeked and he learned this. That's a rabbinical priestly blessing. And what that is, is what the priests would do as they would recite. They would have three openings, one between the two thumbs, between the two sets of four finger, two fingers, and then um, in right here. Okay, So three points where God peeks at you and blesses you. And here's what he would read. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and look at the great result and give you what? Peace. That's yours and that's mine.